0: Welcome to another edition of Running the Race with Rob King. I'm so glad that you're with us today as we continue to go through the book of Revelation. We're in chapter 12. You can open your Bible to Revelation chapter... Did I say 12? It's chapter 7. (laughs) It's where we're at now. Uh, Chapter 7, verses 1 through 8, as we do our verse-by-verse walkthrough of the book of Revelation. Just a reminder that we are in a portion now of Revelation where we are going through these seven seals, these seals that are being broken. The Lamb that was slain, the Lion who reigns, has walked across heaven, taken this scroll from the angel's hand, and is opening the seals. And the seals being opened, this represents the wrath of God being revealed on the earth through the tribulation against everyone who doesn't trust in Christ. So I need to do a little bit of review just so we can kind of stay on track, because there are many things that are happening, obviously, in this uh, in this account, this revelation that's given to John on the island of Patmos when he's an uh, elderly uh, man and the last remaining apostle. Remember that the tribulation— is being brought about by God. He's taking back the earth from Satan. This is Jesus Christ taking back the earth from the enemy. So the judgments of God are revealed as these seals are broken, and we're just going through these seals. Let's see, the first seal was a false peace, right? The second seal was war. The third was famine as a result of the war, no doubt. The fourth was death. Those were the four horsemen of the apocalypse, as they're, as they're called. The fifth seal was the prayer of the saints. Remember, the martyred saints that were there in heaven. The sixth seal we covered last time, unprecedented natural disasters. And now the seventh chapter is really just a little bit of a break between the sixth seal and the seventh seal. So the first five were happening during the first half of the seven-year tribulation, and then if you remember, it gets worse with the sixth seal, and then the seventh, it's even, it's even worse. If you thought the sixth was bad, the seventh is even worse, because then you're going to have the seven bowls and the seven trumpets. There's, there's all of this judgment inside of the seventh seal that we're going to see. Uh, remember, the tribulation is like a womanhood in childbirth. Right, The contractions are going to get closer together, and they're going to get more intense before the Lord Jesus returns. So chapter 7, we're entering now, like I said, it's a bit of a respite, a bit of a breather in the midst of all of these trials and indescribable woes that are on the earth. So at the end of the sixth chapter, people are crying out, the great day of Wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Again, the, the answer is no one. No one is able to stand in the midst of God's wrath. So chapter 7 it gives us a bit of a breather, and it announces these two groups of people that are going to survive the tribulation. By survive, I mean they're going to make it to heaven. Some of them are going to live through it. Some of them are going to be martyred. So there are many people who get saved during the tribulation. There's a great massive revival that happens. There are some that are going to survive the tribulation, and some that are going to be martyred, okay? So the first group that's mentioned that's going to survive are the group of uh, Jewish evangelists, the 144,000. And, of course, then there's this massive group of Of believers who will be martyred. But in that way, they will survive because they're going to make it into God's presence when they're martyred. Because when when I say that they're going to survive the tribulation, I mean they're either going to be ushered into God's kingdom at that moment, or they're going to make it all the way through and and live to the second coming of Christ. But the 144,000 that are sealed in this chapter will survive all the way until Christ's second coming. Obviously, those that are murdered and martyred during the tribulation, they survive because they're going to be in God's presence. In this chapter, we're going to see that God has mercy in the midst of His wrath because He is going to seal some saints that are going to be kept alive, kept in Him throughout all of the tribulation. 1 Thessalonians 5.3 says, "...destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child." And they will not escape. And the second uh, Thessalonians, uh, Paul says this, The Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Then again in another place in second Thessalonians, it says, For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false in order that they may all be judged, who did not believe the truth, but took pleasure in wickedness. So my point in reading all of that is that there's not a single person that's going to survive the tribulation that's not saved. Every single person who has denied Jesus Christ will be judged and will be killed, 100% of unbelievers will be judged. At the same time that that is happening— God is also going to preserve his people. And preserving his people, by the way, is a theme that God carries throughout all of Scripture. In the flood, he preserved eight people, right? When he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, he preserved Lot and his daughters. He preserved people when he destroyed Jericho, right? Rahab. He preserved people when he destroyed Egypt. He, he preserved his people in the midst of all that judgment. We, this is a theme that's so critically important because we can rest in the goodness of God that during the tribulation, he will preserve his people who are saved during the tribulation. First of all, the church is going to be saved because the church is going to be raptured before the tribulation. But then. Even during the tribulation, when God's people are being saved, redeemed, he will preserve them. Just think of Psalm 91. Um, For it is God who delivers you from the snare of the trapper and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you may take refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a bulwark. You will not need to be afraid of the terror by night or the arrow that flies by day, of the pestilence that stalks, stalks in darkness, or of the destruction that lays waste at noon. A thousand may fall at your side and ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not approach you. You will only look on with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked, for you have made the Lord my refuge, even the Most High, your dwelling place. No evil will befall you nor will any plague come near your tent. Another place it says the Lord will preserve the brokenhearted. He saves those who are crushed in spirit. And another place, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. So so not only will God preserve people during the tribulation, but during the tribulation, it's also going to be a time when we will see Israel's kind of their their national salvation that is promised in Romans 9 through 11. We see the prediction and there's a prophecy of Israel's salvation in Zechariah as well. And I want to cover this just because this is so clear in this chapter of Revelation that this is the redemption of Israel that's talked about even in Zechariah. So Zechariah says this in... I, the Lord, will pour out on the house of David and all of the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication, so that they will look on me, whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him, as one mourns for an only son, and they will weep bitterly over him, like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. In that day, there will be great mourning. In Jerusalem. The land will mourn every family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of uh, the Simeites, and all the families that remain, every family by itself and their wives by themselves, and that day a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So in this in this prophecy of Zechariah, he's prophesying the salvation of Israel. Uh, this is what Paul spoke of in Romans 11 when he said, "So all of Israel will be saved, just as as it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob." And this is one of the reasons. This is one of the reasons that chapter seven in Revelation is so critical because we see God sealing His people and using the Israelites as evangelists to bring about this great revival. You ever wonder, when the, when the Bible talks about the 144,000, you ever wonder who that is and how that's working? That's what's covered uh, today as we look at Revelation chapter 7. So let me go through it. Instead of reading the entire passage, I'm just going to go through, as we do, verse by verse, and and let's look at this. You can open to Revelation chapter 7, verse 1. It says this, after this, which is a key indicator that something has changed, there's a new vision, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, so that no wind would blow on the earth, or on the sea, or on any tree. So here we have four angels, four angels, the four corners of the earth. This simply means that they are at the north, south, east, and west. They're covering the entire earth, in other words. okay. There's some discussion around a flat earth. I don't have time to get into that. That is obviously not what is meant here. And they're controlling the entire earth atmosphere. They're holding back the wind. So in other words, the four corners of the earth, meaning north, south, east, and west, it's an all-inclusive term, they're simply holding back the wind that would blow. The earth is completely still. Uh, I'm picturing now a a rodeo, hang with me, and they put the man on the bull, and the bull is, is being held back. He's in the gate. And he's wanting to get out, but he's not out yet. He's in the gate. Or these horses that are at the starting gate, they're ready to run, but they're being held back. So, so in other words, the wrath of the seventh seal, the bowl and trumpet judgments and all this, this is being held back they're being held back by these angels. So the, the wind is 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 blustering, it's ready, it's waiting, the judgment is ready, but this this look here in chapter 7 is is that there are these angels that are holding it back for some reason, it's it's waiting, it's on pause. And here's what happens next. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun that is from the east, having the seal of the living God the signet ring, if you will, and he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of God on their foreheads. Okay, so here we see the reason that they're holding back is so that another angel can join them and help them as they seal those whom God has called. Now, the other angel comes from the east, which would have been, from the vantage point of the island of Patmos, would have been seen as coming from Israel. Some have claimed that this fifth angel is Jesus Christ, but it doesn't really make sense in the translation for it to be Jesus, because the word means another in the same form as the previous four. So just through simple translation it just simply means another angel was joining them. All right? This angel had a signet ring. This is a seal of almighty God. This would be like a they would seal a letter, right? With this ring and it and it had the 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 insignia of the king, the mark of the king so that you knew the letter was from the king. The point here is that they're being sealed by Almighty God with the name of God. And it's interesting that it says here, the living God, as opposed to all of the other false gods that are dead, that are not living. There is one God, the one living God, the one true God who made all things, right? That is our God. God is often referred to in Scripture as the living God. Now, we know that the Antichrist will also seal those who are, are his, but in this instance, this is God sealing those who are the elect, those who are going to be saved right during the tribulation. This is really reminiscent of the way that God marked Israel. How did he do that when he he said, well, put the blood on the doorposts? He was sparing the children of Israel in death. The angel is going to pass over those who are marked. This is also reminiscent of uh, the destruction of Jericho. There was a scarlet cord that marked Rahab, right, for salvation. So in this same way, there are these angels that are the north, south, east, and west, holding the wind back, holding the judgment back, while God's children are being marked, preserved. The the desire here is of Almighty God to hold the tribulation at bay for a moment, hold the winds at bay for a moment, so that they can mark those whom He has selected. Of course, you can't say selected without seeing the word elected. This is God's sovereign choice. This is what man struggles with so much. This is God's sovereign choice. And then we're going to, it's going to go on to say that I heard the number of those who were sealed were 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the the sons of Israel. So in other words, there's going to be 12,000 exactly from 12 tribes, which equals 144,000 Jewish evangelists marked and sealed by Almighty God. These 144,000 are going to be used by God to be the most powerful missionaries and evangelists that the world has ever encountered. So we can think of the tribulation as being at one time God's greatest, of course, His wrath inflicted upon those who do not believe, and at the same time, His greatest Missionary endeavor in in evangelistic work, sweeping through the world, bringing people into the kingdom of God in numbers that have also probably never been equaled. So it's clear that the 144,000 here are Jewish people set apart for this massive revival in the midst of incredible torment. God has withheld judgment for a moment so that he can seal his people. This portion of Scripture is critically important because it reveals the fact that God is not done with the nation of Israel, even though right now the nation of Israel does not believe in Christ. Think about the fact that God is going to use the Jewish people to bring about the greatest revival ever seen. There's going to be an impact that they make during the tribulation that will bring many Gentiles and Jews to salvation. Now, maybe, I, maybe this is a good time for me to just pause and say, when we talk about the nation of Israel, there's all kinds of thought out there about the nation of Israel, right? The fact that, that this, this passage is critically important because it proves that God is not done with the nation of Israel, but it also doesn't tell us what may happen between now and then right between now and the tribulation what's going to happen to the nation of israel some people use this passage to say then nothing bad could ever happen they'll never be defeated in war they'll they'll never be hit with any nuclear threat they're just protected by god this scripture doesn't say that this doesn't say that there there are some people that uh believe all kinds of things about the nation of israel today uh, that that you know kind of nothing bad is going to happen between now and then but I think they go too far uh, in that. God is going to do what He says He's going to do in the Word, and He can save a remnant of them, but we don't really know from this what's going to happen to Israel. I hope, that, I hope this makes sense. I, I, others go too far in thinking that somehow humans are responsible to do everything they can to preserve the nation of Israel until that point. I mean, we don't know what's going to happen to the nation of Israel between now and then. We pray for their peace— but we also know that they're not serving Christ right now, and the only way they're going to serve Christ is by His election and during the tribulation, uh, selecting those and saving those and seeing that revival happen at that time. What we can do is trust the sovereignty of God to preserve at least a remnant of Israel until that time. We understand that even right now, when this podcast is being recorded, that the nation of Israel doesn't honor Jesus Christ or view Him as the Savior. And we can see in this passage today that the only thing that's going to bring them to uh, Christ is a sovereign move of God through His selection. By the way, can you imagine coming up with the exact number of 12,000 people and the, the exact number of 144,000 people? How, who could do that except for God? Could man choose that? There's no way. God has decided beforehand, before all of creation, who he has selected, who he has elected to be saved. Your name, my name, written in the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundation of the world, if in fact we are saved. What this passage points to is the absolute sovereignty of God in all things. And that's what Revelation points to. This is going to happen. Even in the midst of the tribulation where God is judging every single person who is not saved. He's also saving all of those who are His elect, chosen children. God's will is going to be carried out even in the midst of the tribulation. It is His will. This is a good reminder for us. The tribulation is not an act of the Antichrist. It's not an act of Satan or some rogue government entity. It's not an act of man. It's designed by Almighty God. God is sovereign. God is in control. God is in all things. And it is for Him that everything exists, and from Him, and through Him, and to Him, for His glory, that everything exists. Maybe this is just a good place to be reminded of the beauty of the sovereignty of Almighty God. God is in charge. God is not subject to the whims of human authorities. God is not subject to weather patterns and the decisions of mere mortals. Humans are not going to destroy God's earth. Humans won't interrupt the plans that God has for the earth. Humans don't make the decisions that determine the destiny of humankind as much as we think we do. We are pretty arrogant. We think we control all things, but God is over all and in all and through all. God is in the good things in your life. Let me me make this very practical. God is in the bad things. You say, he causes evil? No. He allows evil. Why? For his glory. You say, why would he even allow sin? I mean... Is he sovereign over that? Yes, he's sovereign over Satan. He's sovereign over sin. And he allows all of it for his glory. How would you know his redemptive capability if it weren't for the fall of humankind? How would you know that he's gracious? How would you know that he's kind? How would you know that he's loving? How would you know of his sovereignty without all of it? All for his glory. I can tell you, If you're on a mountaintop, that's a gift from God. And if you're in a valley, that's a gift from God. He's in it. He's in it conforming you to His image. God is aware of all things. He's sovereign over our lives. And and I pray that the sovereignty of God today would give you peace, knowing that He's in charge and He's in control. I had a phone call this week with one woman who was... uh, just happened to be pretty stressed out. I would use the word frazzled, and uh, we talked for a moment, and it ends up that she's uh, has some uh, heart failure issues, congestive heart failure. I mean, serious, serious health conditions that have. Are, uh, it looks like it's really limited the the uh, the amount of time to that she's has remaining here on the earth. And she was talking about all the things that she's going to do, and I just I just reminded her that uh, God is in charge. He's sovereign. He's in control. And if it's her time to go, then when she does go, when she dies, God will take care of her children. God will take care of her husband. It's It gives me great peace. And doesn't it you that you're not in charge of the whole world? That it's not all on your shoulders? God is sovereign. God is in charge. God knows all. And His goal is that we would We would glorify Him and enjoy Him. Glorify Him. Have you learned to glorify Him in the good times and give Him praise and thanks? Giving no credit to yourself but just thanking Him. And then what about the difficult times? Have you seen Him in the hard times? Conforming you to the image of Jesus Christ to a point where you can give Him thanks and say, Father, I thank you. I thank you for the tough times. That's, Those are the times when you're really forming me and helping me to depend on you and helping me to grow in humility and helping me to realize it's not all about me, but Lord, that you would be glorified. So Father, today we're reminded that you're in charge and we thank you, Father. You're in control. Your will is going to be done. Now, Father, may we work as those who are saved, worship as those who are saved, go about our life as those who are on mission with you, God. May we glorify you in all things and see you in all things. Father, I pray for those who have gone through very difficult, even tragic times. Maybe they've been tempted to be bitter towards you. Maybe they've been offended. Maybe they've been angry. Father, that they would see the error of their ways, that they would glorify You in the midst of the difficult times, knowing that You are in those as well. Father, I thank You that we can see You not only in the good times, but we can trust You in the tough times. We know, Lord, that Your goal for our life is that we would be conformed to the image of Your Son. So God, make that a reality today, that we would walk in Your Spirit and glorify You in everything that we do and everything that we say and everything that we think, guided by the truth of your wonderful word. Father, we just thank you that we can trust you right now, but we can also trust you uh, as the time draws near for your coming. We can trust you. You're good. You preserve us and you love us. You're kind to us. Help us to love you well today. In Jesus' name, amen.